This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3655 for Friday, the 5th of August, 2022. Today's show is entitled BSD for Linux Users. It is hosted by BinRC and is about 68 minutes long. It carries an explicit flag. The summary is I attempt to explain the wacky and wonderful world of BSD in a Linux-friendly way. So this is my second episode. It's going to be about uh, BSD. I, I wrote a post for my website because um, I haven't uploaded that post yet. I'll just copy the the text directly into the show notes. Um, but I noticed I hadn't written anything in a long time because I've been busy for a long time. Uh, so I said, let's kill two birds with one stones, uh, with one stone. Uh, let all one people who are subscribed to my RSS feed <laughs> for the, the post section of my website know that I'm still alive and record an episode. Um, I titled that post Idiot's Guide to BSD. Uh, it's pretty vague, right? It's really just for podcast format. Um, I didn't include a lot of detail. Uh, but it's sort of, here's a list of things you can research. I will go into more detail in the podcast episode. And I think sort of the presentation aspect will be uh, more so BSD for Linux guys. Um because a lot of people know Linux, even Windows guys to some extent, uh, they know what Linux is. But as soon as you start talking about Berkeley Unix, they're all lost. Um, so this is, uh, maybe I could call it baby's first BSD or something like that. Um, so let's jump in. Um, to compare uh, a Linux to BSD, I, I like to use this phrase. Um, or I guess this statement, uh, and that statement is Linux was created by PC users attempting to use a mainframe Unix, whereas BSD was created by mainframe Unix users attempting to use a PC. Uh, when you look at a lot of the subtle differences in the design, uh, this, this idea really starts to make a lot of sense. Um, where, Linux is seemingly becoming more and more uh, spaghettified, if you will, in sort of um, anti-Unix philosophy. Uh, BSD maintains that Unix philosophy. Uh, and the use cases, right? The use case for a BSD is, I want mainframe Unix on my laptop. The use case for a Linux is, I hate Windows. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of the big, big use cases. Um, don't take any of the Linux bashing to heart. It's all in good jest. Uh, Unix is the worst operating system, but it's the least bad operating system we have. That applies to Linux as well. Um, so, so BSD is what I like to call, call a pedigree Unix. Uh, what that means is Berkeley Unix, right? The Berkeley software distribution, the original thing that all of this BSD nonsense spawned from, uh, it was a copy of AT&T Unix, right? It was a copy of uh, what they were working on at Bell Labs. After the uh, BSD lawsuit, 
um, all of the persisting AT&T code, all of the persisting Bell Labs code was rewritten um, so that it was a wholly permissively licensed operating system. Uh, this is, this is what's like primordial BSD, right? Nobody actually runs with the Berkeley software distribution. It's old. <laughs> it, it exists for historical purposes only, uh, in any modern iteration. Um, and, and this sort of history in contrast to Linux, uh, we all know the Linux story, right? Uh, some Finnish guy didn't want to pay money for a Minix license, so he wrote his own. Whereas BSD was originally all Bell Labs code, um, you know, different different origin stories, similar similar philosophy, but subtly different. Uh, I think uh, the next topic I have in, or I guess section, is BSD in the wild. So this is kind of some of the places you will find BSD. Um, uh, but first we kind of have to talk about what the BSD licensing is. So the BSD style license is pretty simple. Um, compared to the GPL, there's like a four clause variant that nobody uses, a three clause variant that some people use, and a two clause variant that most people use. Um, really, really, the, any interpretation of them boil down to, uh, do whatever the hell you want with this code. Just don't blame me when it breaks something and don't claim you wrote it. And the fourth clause is, uh, do not advertise your product as, uh, in any way that makes it seem like the authors of the software endorse your product. Um, that sort of non-endorsement, uh, clause is almost like an anti-advertising clause. Uh, and some people took it out because you want, um, your FreeBSD logo on a product that contains FreeBSD in the same way that you want, uh, you know, the GPL, um, software logo on your, uh, cable providers, uh, modem router combo web interface, right? You want to see that thing because then people know, oh, this is free software inside, um, even if it's only a part, part of it. Uh, but what this permissive, permissive licensing means is that, uh, companies can put, um, BSD code into anything they want and then sort of pretend that, oh no, we're not using BSD source code, right? Not advertise it. Um, what I have written down is that companies can put lipstick on the Unix pig, but everybody knows it's a pig in disguise wearing lipstick, um, uh, that's kind of the funny thing about Unix systems and even Linux is the more time you spend with them, uh, the more ways you know how they break and, um, they all break in similar ways. And, you know, when you see an error screen or, you know, your set top box crashes or whatever, and it's clearly a system D screen or something, you know, system D, uh, crash screen, you know, that's Unix immediately. Uh, in the same way uh, that you look at anything Apple has ever manufactured and you can very clearly see uh, that it contains a lot of BSD code. Uh, similarly, if you run the strings command, if you mount a Windows drive and run the strings command against various executables, uh, 
all sorts of networking utilities are, are BSD licensed uh, and developed by, by BSD. Uh, uh, various BSD projects, I should say. Um, there is no one BS, the BSD company, right? That's not a thing. Um, other places you can find BSD, uh, I think the Sony PlayStation 3, 4, and maybe the 5, uh, they run free BSD. Uh, components of the Nintendo Switch run BSD. Um, the International Space Station runs BSD. Uh, pretty much every embedded device that is an Android um, runs BSD. And various corporate Unix abandonwares are, are BSD. Um, so, like, y- your your Wi-Fi-enabled toaster, uh, that probably runs BSD. Um, your electric uh, Wi-Fi-enabled dishwasher, that probably runs BSD if it's not running Android. Um and that's just because the BSD code base is smaller. Uh, it's easier to make embedded devices with, and you don't have to deal with the GPL when you're making a proprietary product uh, that, as Richard Stallman would say, exists for the sole purpose of disempowering and entrapping end users. Uh, because really, why do you need a Wi-Fi-enabled toaster and dishwasher? It's just kind of a ridiculous idea, but people build these things and people buy these things. So obviously someone wants their toaster to connect to the internet. Uh, Like that's not the worst idea anyone has ever had. Um, The next section is sort of for for Linux guys, how to interact with BSD guys. Um, uh, Most of the Linux enthusiasts, uh, I, I try to think of them as, or I don't try to think of them as, uh, but I've come to the realization that a lot of Linux enthusiasts are a lot like missionaries. Um, they want to sort of pull people into the community, uh, and make the whole community and software accessible to more people. Um, where the BSD guys really don't care about, I guess, converting new users, right? There's no, there's no big switch to BSD push every time. Uh, is something unfavorable in, in Windows or, or, or Linux happens, right? That, that's just not a thing. Um, kind of the general attitude for BSD developers is we wrote this code for ourselves. Uh, if it's useful for you, cool. Uh, if not, we don't care. Um, in this sort of attitude, right, the Linux users tend to be more helpful, um, uh, but I've seen more frequently, this is my anecdotal experience, of course, um, when people are asking about questions in various BSD forums or IRC groups, uh, you know, the response is, is typically RTFM, uh, read the docs, or read the source code, or why didn't you send us error logs if it's a bug and not just a configuration mistake? Uh, a, a lot of it is... Um, we have this ex- huge existing body of documentation. Why aren't you referencing this before going on the forums and asking a question about a non-bug? Uh, you know, something that we've all, you know, figured out before by reading the documentation. Um, and not everyone's this bitter, but I think sort of the attitude of consulting your available resources before bothering someone else Um and by bothering, I mean asking them a question that may or may not be wasting their time if they're not the type of person 
who enjoys talking for hours endlessly about uh, sort of niche things. Um, you know, consult your resources first before asking. Not everyone's this bitter, of course. I- I've had a couple people help me with things. Um, specifically, uh, Broadcom chips on FreeBSD, but I'll get back to that. Uh, their general answer was buy a different Wi-Fi chipset. Uh, and in retrospect, I should have just listened before I even tried. Uh, but I'll get to that again, uh, later. So the next section, forking versus distros. Um, in Linux land, we all know distributions are pretty much the same code base and, uh, the distributors and the distribution maintainers, uh, they just theme them a little bit differently. Um, they change various compile time options. Uh, it's pretty much the same software. Uh, so in theory, you could statically link a program and copy it from your Debian box to your uh, Fedora box. And if it's statically linked, uh, it'll probably just run as long as the kernels didn't change too much between the two um, operating systems. Uh, but in BSD land, there's not really such thing as distros. So the big three are, are FreeBSD, NetBSD, and OpenBSD. Uh, they're entirely independent from each other. They they don't share a common upstream that they're pulling updates from. Uh, they're forks of, like I said previously, what we would call primordial BSD. Okay, four four dot four Berkeley software distribution. Okay, basically Berkeley Unix. Um, their kernels are entirely different. Uh, their user user lands are very different. Uh, they do share code between the various projects. Um, but you can't just statically link a binary and dump it from like a free BSD box, uh, to an open BSD box or vice versa and expect it to just run. Uh, there is a caveat here though. There are meta distributions of free BSD. I call them meta distributions because, um, a lot of it really just feels like, or a lot of them really just feel like someone have, someone has written uh, sort of an, an install desktop.sh type script and then just ran it and then built uh, built an ISO. Um, it's still They still very much feel like FreeBSD. Uh, and, and that leads us into the next section, what I, what I have titled officially the section, The Idiot's Guide to Picking a BSD. Uh, not that you're an idiot, uh, but maybe if you are, uh, I'll walk you through it baby steps. Uh, so this is a series of like, this is the, this is the thing that I want. And then my response, of course, my response is not authoritative. Uh, so the first type of user, um, they're the person who wants basically a Linux desktop out of the box, but they want a BSD kernel so they can look cool when they post their NeoFetch logos on the forums in, in the, you know, the Linux desktop screenshot thread, uh, and this also applies to people who uh, want a desktop out of the box. Um, I don't recommend these because they're very short-lived and they kind of come and go with the seasons. Uh, but as of recording, these sort of desktop free BSD forks, um, right? The old ones that don't exist is like PC BSD is an example. Uh, the ones that currently exist and probably won't exist forever, um, or I guess as long as FreeBSD exists because they come and go. 
Hello Systems, I guess they wanted to make it look like Mac OS. Uh, GhostBSD, um, I don't know much about GhostBSD. Uh, NomadBSD, sort of the idea there is like a bootable live USB stick um, with persistence um, and a desktop environment. Uh, sort of as a rescue system or as sort of, uh, bring your own OS type idea. L- like back in the day when you would install, uh, like a minimal, um, Ubuntu image, uh, to a USB stick and then take it to the public library and just <laughs> enter the BIOS on the public library computers when nobody is looking and then boot from the USB stick and then pretend that you're not running Linux, but you are anyway. Um, and the last desktop environment distribution, I guess, of FreeBSD would be Midnight BSD. Uh, I don't think these are really the best way to experience BSD, but if you want, um, if you want something that comes prepackaged with the desktop, these are options. Uh, I don't recommend these because it's very easy to just install the desktop you want and then enable the services that make everything run. Uh, if you want a viable desktop operating system, uh, with a BSD kernel, uh, this is what I would call a viable Linux replacement. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Why it's viable, uh, for Linux replacement, that would be FreeBSD, <clears throat> specifically with a desktop environment that is not GNOME. <clears throat> the reason I say not GNOME is because, uh, the GNOME desktop hooks too much into systemd and various systemd components. Uh, so the GNOME port for FreeBSD is, uh, somewhat janky and old. I've had much greater success with KDE, XFCE. Uh, I don't think I've ever tried Mate on FreeBSD. And then pretty much every tiling window manager. Uh, right now I run DWM on FreeBSD, uh, because I, I like the suckless tools. I like the aspect of um, modifying source code and being able to sort of compile these runtime options into the executable, uh, because I don't need to be changing them at runtime, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have, uh, dynamic configuration when I, I pretty much set up the window manager once and then leave it forever and ever. Um, if you want something to, Learn with specifically a learn by example for, for C programming. Uh, that would be OpenBSD, and that's because the source code for OpenBSD is very simple, uh, short, and it's pretty fairly operating system agnostic, with the exception of pledge and unveil system calls. Um, a lot of my C programming came from reading OpenBSD source code for various shell utilities. Um, and that's one thing I highly recommend for everybody, even someone who's not interested in BSD specifically is to just read the source code for, uh, you know, their LS command, their PWD command. Uh, it's so short and simple and almost clever. Um, uh, although I do write my programs more complicated than <laughs> the simple open BSD way. 
Um, if you want to prevent shoot footing incidents, uh, what I mean by foot shooting incidents uh, is sort of that a computer's a loaded gun, and when it's running Unix, uh, or any operating system for that matter, uh, your finger's on the trigger. Uh, it's sort of a big, you know, a, a gun with a sign that says shoot foot here. Uh, that's kind of what Unix is and computers in general. Uh, OpenBSD kind of prevents these incidents uh, and scenarios. That's why I would recommend OpenBSD. Uh, is because a lot of the time when you try to do something stupid on OpenBSD, uh, it either doesn't work or it becomes crashy and buggy, uh, or it's just an absolute thorn in your side and is very difficult to accomplish your bad idea. Um, uh, that's kind of the biggest reason I recommend OpenBSD. Uh it's just because a lot of the defaults and even the way the system comes together um, is sort of designed in a way where it's a little bit more difficult to make a dumb mistake or, or even intentionally make something, uh, make a decision that is something uh, you probably shouldn't do. Um, if you want to run a Unix system on an obscure device, again, OpenBSD runs on a lot of architectures, and uh, these ports to various architectures are actually self-hosting. Uh, what they what self-hosting means is when you download the the OpenBSD image that'll run on your fax machine, that that installer and all of the software available uh, for that architecture are actually built on a fax machine. Uh, you know, the Spark port is actually built on a Spark machine. Uh, the 32-bit Intel port is actually built on a 32-bit Intel machine. They don't cross-compile, so you know everything works. Uh, NetBSD runs on pretty much everything also, uh, except way more than, than OpenBSD. Um, although NetBSD kind of is more focused on, on a cross-compile-based architect, or I guess... A cross compile uh, based workflow to getting software to run on your target architecture rather than a self hosting. Uh, if you still can't decide, uh, just go with FreeBSD. It feels like old Debian, but without all of the paper cuts of old Debian. Um, just a standard FreeBSD image. Uh, it, it's It's has the most uh, software available for it, which is why I recommend it um, over the other BSDs. Because, you know, what is an operating system but a bootloader for user land applications? That's what most people are interested in. Not not the extremely niche aspects of, you know, and the nuances between uh, Unix-like operating systems. As for hardware... Um, you know, they say Linux runs on everything until you've bought a computer that Linux doesn't run on. Um, BSD hardware support is sort of uh, less than Linux. So you might get away with running Linux on something. It's a little bit buggy at times, but it works. Um, uh, BSD, it might not even boot. <laughs> you might not get Wi-Fi. Uh, you might not get graphics or have graphical bugs. Um, so if you want to run a laptop, uh, I recommend Lenovo ThinkPads. Buy something old on eBay. Uh, it doesn't have to be so old that it's like an IBM ThinkPad. 
Um, but I run FreeBSD on, on an X220, and I've ran it on a T460, I think, is what that one is. Uh, it typically just runs. Um, similarly, by a Dell desktop, uh, those usually work, but there are some caveats. Uh, so one thing you have to think about is that BSD is sort of a server operating system, right? Uh, Unix is general purpose, but in a mainframe context, you're going to be running that on a server. And now we ask ourselves, what processors, uh, what components were we running on servers for the last, I don't know, 20 years? Uh, it was all Intel. Uh, so if you have an Intel processor, uh, you're going to have less of a bad time. Uh, if you can find an Intel wireless chipset, specifically a Centrino, um, you will get Wi-Fi to work without having to compile buggy, non-free, uh, wireless driver kernel modules into your kernel. Um, that's why I said not Broadcom. <laughs> this is, uh, let, let me finish with the Intel start stuff first. Um, Intel integrated graphics, those work quite well. Um, I have not tried NVIDIA GPU or AMD GPUs, um, because why do you need a GPU on a server operating system, right? That's kind of the attitude. Uh, haven't noticed any difference between Intel processors with vPro and without vPro. All I've noticed is that vPro, uh, turns your computer into an oven. Uh, even having an Intel sticker, an Intel sticker will make BSD run better. Um, as for, okay, circling back to the Broadcom idea, this is sort of my anecdote about why I say just buy Intel everything, um, even for Linux. Uh, so I had a Broadcom wireless card and sort of the issue with Broadcom wireless cards is, uh, the official firmware is non-free, the free implementations are buggy. When you have a buggy Wi-Fi driver in your kernel, your kernel crashes all the time. I ask the forums, hey, is there any way to fix this? They say, just buy an Intel card. Uh, you know, you ask the IRC, is there any way to make my, my computer not crash all the time because the Broadcom driver is crashing? Uh, the answer is, is just buy an Intel wireless chipset. Um, okay, so now getting into the specifics... Uh, so I'm going to go over FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and then NetBSD. Uh, talk about sort of their merits and demerits and go on long tangents. Uh, an interesting fourth BSD is Dragonfly BSD. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it because I don't know very much about it. Uh, but sort of the use case for Dragonfly BSD is, is a multi-processor uh, system. Uh, so either, you know, like a dual Xeon motherboard or, or a cluster, uh, a lot of the stuff in Dragonfly, although it's still in development and it's not quite fully cooked yet, um, it, it sort of eliminates the, uh, the need for, you know, proxies behind proxies, behind proxies, behind load balancers, behind proxies. Uh, because instead of having, you know, layers of load balancing and proxying, uh, you just have one cluster and, uh, sort of the kernels decide amongst themselves. Uh, I, I don't understand a whole lot about, 
uh, clustering. I'm, I've only built a cluster once. Um, and by built, I mean assembled all of the components and then wrote a hello world program that ran on each of the cores and returned the process ID and the host name that they ran on. Um, uh, but one thing, one, I guess, extra credit thing you can look, look into is Dragonfly BSD. Um, that's all I'll say about that. So the first one, the big one, the one that I recommend to people who don't know what to choose is FreeBSD. Uh, sort of the goal of the FreeBSD project is to create a general purpose, easy to use operating system. I agree with this. Uh, they, they kind of have achieved their goal. You can use it for a lot of things. Uh, use cases for FreeBSD, server, desktop operating system, uh, network area storage, hypervisor, a- anything you can think of, it pretty much uh, does the job. <clears throat> it does the job quite well because it's not purpose-specific. Uh, and that's one thing you see when you install the operating system is it doesn't come with all sorts of software. You know, It doesn't come with a web server stack or a desktop stack. Uh, it comes fairly minimally and allows the the user administrator to choose what they want on the system. Um, and I think that's the thing that I should say for all of the BSDs, uh, is that it's not like w- when you pick a BSD with the exception of the, the short-lived FreeBSD forks, I mean FreeBSD distros, um, it's not like downloading an Ubuntu image that comes with all of the software out of the box. It's more like an Arch Linux or a Gen 2 image um, where choice is left to the user on, on exactly how to configure the system, what things you want installed, what things you want enabled. Um, you know, more power to the user. The user is right. The admin is right, not the maintainer's type attitude. Uh, so some FreeBSD features. So the core operating system feels, it feels very clean and organized. And I think this is the same for, uh, all of the BSDs. They feel clean and they feel organized, uh, compared to a Linux. And that's because there's not these two mutually exclusive sort of headbutting ideas of, you know, Linux versus GNU. Um, <clears throat> these two, uh, systems that do work together, uh, but weren't designed to work together, kind of being shoehorned in with each other. Um, so what I mean by this, the biggest example I can, I can think of for FreeBSD is that everything required to boot the system is in the root directory. And all of the ancillary user installed stuff, all the stuff that's not required to boot the system is in slash user slash local. Uh, this includes your uh, ancillary third-party sta- non-standard libraries like ncurses, uh, so on and so forth. Um, another interesting thing, actually, that's a storage question. Oh, well, I'll leave it in there in the notes. Uh, FreeBSD is kind of familiar to Linux users. Uh, it is a little bit alien, um, but there's quite a bit of documentation. If you read the handbook, uh, you'll be all set. Uh, if you're like a Linux power user and you know how to read man pages, um, you'll be just fine. Uh, as for storage, uh, FreeBSD, they technically have UFS. Um, don't use UFS, just use ZFS. It's the only good RAID uh, file system. 
Uh, ZFS brings a lot of things to the table, like uh, better multi-disc setups than Linux logical volume and volume management, in my opinion. Uh, ZFS brings encrypted Z volume. So what this means is because Unix is a multi-user system, you have multiple users. Uh, each user can sort of get their own Z vol. Z vol is just, uh, think partition when I say Z vol. Uh, it's a partition, but without a hard, uh, size. Uh, I could probably do a whole episode on ZFS, but I'm no expert. I can just say why it's cool. Uh, so each user can get their own ZVol for their home directory, and each ZVol can be encrypted. Uh, this is kind of what they're trying to accomplish with encrypted home directories using systemd homed, um, except it's at a much lower layer in the stack. It's at, at the file system layer instead of uh, the sort of alien monstrous bootloader level. <laughs> The sort of bootloader that has become everything level. Um, another interesting thing about ZFS is uh, you can use ZFS boot environments. So what this means is before you upgrade your system and break the whole thing, uh, you can do a boot environment for it. So pre-custom kernel breaking everything, well, we have a boot environment that boots into the old kernel where we still have our Wi-Fi drivers working. Um you know, ZFS does snapshots too, so you can roll backwards or forwards. And I think uh, in one example I've done, it is possible to do sort of version control with ZFS, although it is very, very messy. Uh, and it's somewhat difficult to use without excessive scripting duct tape. Uh, but it is kind of a fun experiment uh, to see if you can replace sort of a Git-style version control with ZFS. Uh, also full disk encryption. That's pretty standard with, uh, with Gelly and encrypted ZVols. Uh, third party software for FreeBSD, they have the largest port system. Uh, so one, one thing that contrasts sort of a BSD system from a Linux system is that in the, the BSD world, uh, all of the packages are called ports. Um, and that's because they have been ported. They are not part of the base system. They are ported to the system, not maintained by the operating system developers. Uh, they're ancillary, they're ports. Um, so the interesting thing about these port systems is that, uh, yes, they all ship binary packages with some sort of package utility that's familiar if you've ever used like an apt uh, or a DNF. Uh, or a yum, or a zipper, or a Pac-Man, or what have you. Uh, but they also ship the entire porch tree with a series of make files. Uh, so what this means is that you can compile all of the software on your system yourself, if you really feel like it. And uh, depending on which options you set, you can blacklist various packages that you don't want to be installed, or set various compile time options. Uh, so if you need, if you need a feature, uh, I guess sort of an obscure feature in, for example, your Apache web server, uh, you can compile that in. Um, and there's a cool tool for, uh, FreeBSD called like Poudrier. Uh, I don't know how to say it, Poudrier. Um, Basically what it is is a tool that allows you to build a local package repository, binary package repository of all your FreeBSD uh, ports. 
um, with whatever whatever custom options you want to build. It's kind of like if you were to uh, basically build the Gen 2 package server of, of binary packages um, and then serve it on your local area network for all your various Gen 2 machines. Um, another interesting feature of FreeBSD is jails. Uh, so a jail, when I think of jails, I think of a jail as like a cheroot, um, but the jail is actually secure. Um, you know, use, using some namespace nonsense or whatever you have, uh, the way to explain jails to a Linux user is it's like Docker, but without downloading random stuff from GitHub and blindly trusting it. Um, uh, Although there are some some recipes for making jails, I think like the easy jail command, uh, but it's not downloading an entire operating system minus the kernel and then running it trusting that the guy who put it together isn't malicious. Uh, it's a recipe that says, hey, copy these things from the base system into the jail and then go into the jail and install these packages. It's a lot more like an Ansible script, how you would use jails. Um, all the jails share a kernel, right? It's the same as a cheroot, uh, but they have separate host names, IP addresses, network interfaces, so on and so forth. Uh, on FreeBSD, there's virtualization, right? That's kind of a standard thing nowadays. Uh, there's the Beehive hypervisor. I believe it can. I believe the Beehive hypervisor can plug into uh, QEMU in the same way that KVM can plug into QEMU. Um, I also think you might be able to get away with using Vert Manager to plug into Beehive, although I haven't tested it. Uh, I have, I have actually ran Vert Manager to connect to like a QEMU uh, machine across the network. Uh, the virtualization stuff is all there. I don't really use Beehive very much when I need to build a hypervisor. I just use KVM because um, it's what I know. Security, uh, FreeBSD has access control lists. Uh, access control lists are kind of like uh, mandatory access control, except not quite. Uh, FreeBSD also has a thing called Capsicum. It's like a sandboxing framework. Uh, Capsicum is something you want to use with your web browser, right? You don't want your web browser talking to various things it shouldn't be talking to, right? That's the example. Um, FreeBSD security, as you can kind of tell, is more so based around uh, segregating parts of the system that shouldn't be talking to each other. Um, so, like the common usage for jails is to run your web browser in a different jail from your uh, DNS server from a diff from your uh, mail server, and so on and so forth. Uh, the one thing that that makes uh, FreeBSD sort of, you know, the cream of the crop for the Linux guys uh, is that FreeBSD has a Linux compatibility layer and uh, some people have, e have even successfully been able to run Steam through this Linux compatibility layer and then use the uh, Steam's um, Linux Windows compatibility layer for Linux. Uh, so, so how this works, let me, let me go from, uh, the opposite direction. So you have a game that's written for Windows. Steam makes it possible to run that game on Linux. But FreeBSD has a Linux compatibility layer making that Windows game possible to run on FreeBSD. Uh, obviously performance is not very good. 
Um, but it is possible, uh, although buggy, um, because they don't translate all of the system calls that are required, uh, just most of them. Uh, also, Wine works on FreeBSD. Uh, I haven't tested it. I don't do a lot with Wine just because I don't really have any use case for, uh, or I guess any interest really in running programs designed exclusively for Microsoft operating systems. I really could care less um, about that software. As for documentation, I have a link. It's the FreeBSD handbook. Uh, if you're jumping in, read the handbook. It's a very good resource. It's, it's a step-by-step for everything, including installing desktop environments, web servers, security, so on and so forth. I highly recommend the handbook. Uh, so some detriments for FreeBSD. Um, so I, file system, the UFS file system is not journaled by default. It's possible to enable journaling, uh, although nobody really does that. My recommendation, just use ZFS. Um, just use ZFS. It's way easier. Uh, virtualization. The detriment here is they have a virtual box port. Why I put this in detriments is I don't like virtual box. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on that. I don't like virtual box. That's sort of, I thought it was funny to write it there. Uh, elaborate on that. No security. So FreeBSD is faster, uh, than a lot of things you've tried. Um, what that means is some of the security settings are kind of lacking. If you open up your terminal on your FreeBSD machine and type uh, man7security, I think that's the syntax for man pages. Let me check real quick. Yeah, so that is the syntax. Of course, I couldn't think of something. Uh, so man seven security, it walks you through all the different security things. And also the handbook walks you through those security things. Uh, so if you're just getting started, you're curious about the BSD world, uh, jump into FreeBSD. Um, there's a lot of shoot uh, foot shooting incidents to be had, uh, but it is pretty fun. It is a very fun operating system, in my opinion. Um there's still a lot of fun to be had in it. Uh, okay, so the next thing I'm going to talk about, OpenBSD. So uh, sort of the goals of OpenBSD are, are simplicity, portability, standardization, correctness, uh, proactive security, and cryptography. So the big use cases for OpenBSD are networking appliances, uh, servers, and then the final one is is desktops. Um Really, the only people who run uh, an OpenBSD desktop are are paranoid or, or they work on the thing uh, all day, every day. So it's kind of beneficial to, you know, dog do the whole dog fooding thing where you actually use the product that you're creating uh, to create a better product. Uh, so some merits, the core operating system, webcam and microphone are disabled by default. Uh, the only way you can re-enable these is by changing a boot time option. Uh, in your rc.conf. Uh, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, it's the rc.conf uh, to enable them. Uh, and I should say all of these systems use a sysv init style uh, init system. 
what that means is Unix style, not BSD style. Everything is pretty much shell scripts. Uh, that's how the boot, uh, the init system works. Uh, so the big thing about OpenBSD is security. Okay. So, so the critics are going to say this is security theater, uh, but I'll run through these real quick. I won't elaborate too much. Um, to kind of, you know, it's not security theater. They've actually done some things that are pretty interesting. Uh, so they've done API changes. Uh, if you've ever written C, you know that any of the functions in string.h are leaky and they like to leak memory and cause crashes in seg vaults. Uh, so they wrote their own implementations instead of like uh, strn copy, they have strl copy and stra, strl cat. Um, and these, what these functions do is crash instead of, uh, allow bad behavior. Uh, another interesting feature, every time you reboot, uh, or, or boot an open BSD system, the kernel is randomly relinked. Um, what this means is for a potential attacker, they, for example, if they know there is a vulnerability in one of your standard libraries, uh, they can install OpenBSD themselves. Uh, figure out where that standard library is for the kernel in memory, and then run that exploit. When you randomly relink, um, they try to jump on, you know, insert uh, a vulnerability and then try to jump onto it. Uh, it's kind of harder to find where those libraries are at when they're randomly relinked and you don't tell people where they're at. Um, in simpler terms, if you think of uh, sort of an executable program, uh, your kernel, for example, as, uh, you know, the kernel and then various standard libraries stacked on top of it that make it possible. Uh, think of it like a deck of cards and then just shuffle them. Uh, good luck finding where the buggy standard library function is when you just shuffle the, the entire deck of standard libraries. Um, they also do some memory protection. So they have a, a write, uh, write or execute protection. Uh, what this means is that a segment of memory is either exclusively writable or exclusively executable. This prevents an attacker um, from sending some well-crafted TCP packet to your system that writes a value to memory and then uh, immediately executes uh, that memory they just wrote to. Um, additionally, uh, every time you run the malloc, uh, memory is randomly allocated. Uh, what this means is instead of giving, you know, you say, hey, give me 2,000 bytes. Instead of giving you 2,000 bytes sequentially, uh, it'll give you random pages all over the place. <laughs> Which means um, buggy programs seg fault and they crash very loudly. Uh, and this also makes debugging a little bit difficult. But that's one of the reasons I like programming on OpenBSD is because when you have a memory error... The, your program just crashes. Uh, so you know there's a memory error. Um, and this is also a security feature, right? Uh, when you put your memory in random locations uh, and someone's trying to mess with your memory, uh, it crashes rather than just works. Um, cryptography. So full disk encryption is a thing. It's a little bit difficult to do if you don't uh, read the documentation on it. There's no click the box for, uh, a full disk encryption, but it includes swap space, you know, various cryptography algorithms, the TCP IP stack randomizes things, crypto, you know, stuff that I don't know a whole lot about. Uh, 
except for full disk encryption. Um, so their X11 fork is called uh, Xenocara. Uh, what's interesting about Xenocara is a typical X server runs as root. Uh, it kind of has to in order to access the display device, but the Xenocara, uh, I guess, display manager and also this the child X processes, uh, they don't run as root. Um, although running an X application or an X uh, session as root doesn't typically cause problems. If you're running something like a web browser and you have like a federal agency coming after you, you know, something ridiculous like that, uh, they'll be able to get into your web browser. And because your web browser is a child process of the X session, uh, they'll be able to exploit the X session. And because the X session is running as root, right, you get the idea. Um, another interesting feature, pledge and unveil system calls. Uh, so the pledge system call restricts capabilities for a process. Uh, what this means is when a process misbehaves, the kernel instantly kills it. Um, this is kind of a thing on all modern Unixes, but uh, for the average user, what this means is you don't have to be afraid of writing a buggy program because if it's really buggy, the kernel will just kill it before your buggy program starts corrupting the kernel and writing random stuff to disk. Um, the unveil system call restricts file system access. I haven't used either of these system calls, but as I'm talking about them, they're kind of interesting, and uh, I might read more into them. Uh, all of the standard daemons run in a cheroot with privilege separation. So what this means is your your HTTPD runs in a cheroot, uh, your DNS server uh, runs in a cheroot, um, you, your like NTP server runs in a cheroot. Uh, and this Chiroot is, is more secure. They've done some work on the Chiroot. It's like more secure than a, a, a Linux Chiroot where Chiroot escape is possible. Um, an OpenBSD Chiroot is a lot more like a jail, but they've kind of made uh, the concept of a jail, uh, a FreeBSD jail. Uh, they've kind of made the concept of the jail transparent to the end user. Uh, you know, just something behind the scenes. Uh, they also do a address space layout randomization and a million other things. Uh, as for third-party software support, OpenBSD is is a is a complete operating system in the same sense uh, that FreeBSD is, with the exception uh, that OpenBSD comes with like a web server. Uh, it comes with inetd. It comes with an email server. Right, all of the all of the things you might possibly need. Uh, come with OpenBSD, including various graphical environments, although nobody uses those graphical environments except for Theo Durat himself. Um, uh, and some of what you want, not everything you want, but a lot of the things you want are available in the ports or we're using the package add command. That's pkg underscore add. Um, and, and then, for example, you want XFCE instead of CWM because you're not Theo himself. Uh what you do is you, you know you package add xfce and then you modify your your .x session in your home directory to boot that when you log in through the display manager um you know web browsers are all there compilers are all there all the typical stuff you would use right cuz really what more do you need than a terminal in a web browser right that's all there um uh, some interesting OpenBSD subprojects. 
you know, the cart protocol that makes people that made people mad. Uh, the Duaz program, Duaz is a lot like sudo, but the uh, code base is significantly smaller, um, which means it's significantly less opportunity for exploitation. Uh, OpenBSD, HTTPD, right? A small web server, uh, Libre SSL, a small version of SSL, uh, you know, BGPD, NTPD, SMTPD, SSH, uh, all of these things are OpenBSD projects, or at least the implementation of these protocols that you're probably using on your Linux system, like SSH, that's probably OpenSSH. Uh, similarly, if you're running a web server, open SMTPD is, uh, probably the one you'll be looking at because it's the easiest to configure. Uh, you know, the PF firewall, I, I say it's the only easy to use firewall. Um, uh, SpamD is kind of an interesting program. It, it's an email filter that plugs into PF. There's a whole bunch of other sub projects they've done. Um, Uh, that have made their way across various operating systems. Uh, their virtualization stack looks like uh, VMM and VMD. I've never used either of those. Like I said, I typically just use KVM on Linux. Uh, documentation, read the FAQ. I have a link for that. Uh, read the handbook. I don't think the handbook's official, um, but it has some good information and good examples. So read that. Um and then I guess the last example of documentation is just read the source code. Uh, OpenBSD source code is fairly small. And sort of, you know, the security theme kind of uh, makes sense uh, for why the source code is, is fairly short. And that's because the larger your code base gets, the more unmanageable it becomes and the more opportunity for, I guess, unseen error Um comes into play. So sort of the idea of minimal code base, or I guess minimum viable source code for, for uh, what you need uh, to accomplish a goal. Um, that's why I recommend reading OpenBSD source code. So some like anti-features, some demerits for OpenBSD. Uh, a lot of these security features can cause slowdowns. Uh, sometimes if you really want to shoot yourself in the foot, you can't. Um, when I first started using OpenBSD, I really wanted to shoot myself in the foot, uh, and I couldn't. Um, it, it had something to do with Apache, I think. Uh, something ridiculous like that that I wanted, you know, something stupid like putting home directories on Apache instead of just copying files, something like that. Uh, detriments, if you use OpenBSD, uh, people will call you probably uh, paranoid and say that you've fallen for a security theater uh, type scam, uh, I guess getting bullied online. <laughs> if you like, if you like getting bullied online, maybe it's not a detriment. Uh, but that's one of the biggest claims is pe people don't really like, uh, the open BSD developers. Uh, people don't really like them, uh, because the idea of, uh, you know, we're the only secure operating system. Uh, of course, that's sort of kind of a joke, right? Cause no software is secure. Uh, we just have uh, least least bad software. And when I say the least insecure software, it's probably not OpenBSD. Um, but there's enough security through obscurity that you're going to be fine if you're running OpenBSD. Um, 
another detriment. If you want like a just works uh, trademark Unicode symbol Linux desktop experiment experience, you're going to have to open up vulnerabilities. You're going to have to install stuff like Dbus. You're going to have a nightmare of a time. Uh, and another thing, OpenBSC does not have mandatory access control. Uh, that's the biggest reason why the critics say it's a security theater. Um, even though you really don't need mandatory access control if you're running everything inside of a cheroot anyway. Um, but more power to him. I had another idea that I lost. Um, we'll just go to NetBSD and then I'll do some closing thoughts. Uh, so the goal of NetBSD is clean, careful design, scalability, and portability. So, so the biggest use cases for NetBSD are on the server, embedded environments, and then desktop if you're a flagellant. Uh, desktop if you're a glutton for punishment. Uh, that, that's mostly in jest. I, I haven't used much NetBSD except for an IRC bouncer. Um, uh, but SDF.org, they run NetBSD, uh, you know, embedded devices. Uh, you know, International Space Station runs NetBSD. Some people run it as a desktop. Uh, I never have. I probably should. Uh, let's go into some features. Portability. NetBSD actually runs everywhere. I have a link for it. Um, the page is very long. Very, very long. Uh, they have a three-tiered system. Um, they have, you know, the big boy architectures, they have the weird ones, and then they have the really weird ones that are on life support. Uh, the really weird ones, he can still probably get an older version of NetBSD to run. Uh, an interesting thing, NetBSD's build script, build.sh, is sort of de designed for cross-compiling. Uh, so what this means is if you have NetBSD on your standard x86 machine, you can build, uh, you know, some extremely niche architecture uh, build an image for it and just burn it to a floppy or whatever your extremely niche deprecated architecture takes uh, and get it to boot. Uh, I have played with build.sh a little bit, um, but not as much as I have played with the next feature, which is package source. If you don't know about package source, it's very cool. Uh, package source is a port system. Um, it's Unix agnostic, which means it runs pretty much everywhere. It's architecture agnostic, which means it runs pretty much everywhere. It's a third-party packaging framework. Uh, you know, Minix uses package source, if anyone even uses Minix. Uh, sort of the idea behind package source is similar to, uh, like I described earlier, the free BSD porch tree, uh, except that it's operating system agnostic. Um, so you can run package source on NetBSD, Mac, Illumos, Linux, uh, OpenBSD if you're a glutton for punishment. Uh, and the idea behind package source is that um, you can, if your uh, operating system or I guess distribution maintainers don't ship a specific package or they don't ship them with the compile time options you really want, uh, you can install package source and build those things from source in a way that's a lot easier to manage than downloading random stuff off GitHub. Um, I think source-based package repository, that's what package source is, and it's all make files and shell scripts, right? Um, virtualization, uh, Zen hypervisor runs on NetBSD. There's also NVMM, which is a NetVSD NetBSD VMM, right? Just like OpenBSD's VMM. Um, it's a lot similar to KVM and it works with uh, QEMU. 
Um, so that means you can use run your wacky architectures inside of a virtual machine on that BSD because that has QAMU support. Uh, storage, they have a whole bunch of file systems, including journaled UFS and ZFS. I've always just used journaled UFS on that BSD because it seems to just work. Uh, they also have LVM, that's kind of like Linux logical volume manu- management. Um, LVM, right? That's what it is, logical volume management. Uh, NetBSD is almost entirely POSIX compliant, depending on which version of the POSIX spec you're referencing. Uh, uh, but of course, you can't get POSIX certification unless you pay big money like Apple does, because, you know, it's so important to have the sticker for POSIX compatibility, even though all the people buying your fashion product don't care about POSIX compatibility. They just care about what you advertise on TV. Um and I think one of the most interesting things about NetBSD is that the kernel is entirely scriptable with Lua. Uh, and its systems are scriptable in Lua. Off the top of my head, I could be wrong, but I believe they have a Lua interpreter in the kernel. Uh, of course, it's very minimal and it does not support floating point numbers. Uh, but sort of the idea of not having to script your entire operating system in shell scripts uh, and in systemd's case... Um, Nightmare languages like Python, uh, or I guess the Red Hat case, you know, not having to script everything in Python. Uh, it, it's really interesting. It's really interesting that there's a uh, Lua interpreter in the kernel. Um, and, and that's something I will have to play with more. Uh, you know, I haven't used NetBSD a whole lot. I need to play with it more in the same way that I need to play with. Uh, um, Dragonfly more. Uh, so to recap, uh, let's talk about some of these, uh, bigger ideas, right? The non-specific ideas. Uh, so all the BSD systems use a, you know, SysV init style init system. Uh, what this means is basically, uh, an RC script, right? Etsy slash RC.conf, uh, the old style way, right? The pre, uh, what was the weird Ubuntu thing before system D? Uh, right, the pre-upstart way of doing things on a Linux system, <laughs> right, before upstart was a thing, before, you know, the upstart fever dream was a thing. Uh, almost like an, if you've ever used OpenRC, it's almost like using OpenRC. Uh, and sort of the, the resistance for uh, systemd-like thing, although they are coming, right, you can't resist multi-threaded uh, or not multi-threaded, but sequentially starting processes at boot. You can't resist that forever if you want to compete. Um, I guess some other interesting things, uh, more emphasis on the Unix philosophy. So the Unix philosophy is, um, you know, do each process, each program should do one thing and do it well. Uh, in Linux, we kind of have these big, almost Windows-like amalgamations of things, right? Systemd is an example. Gnome is an example. Um, uh, but in the BSD world, they try to modularize things to the point where uh, when something in the pipe breaks, you can sort of uh, figure out which one it is. Um, and I think, you know, sort of the uniqueness, each of these operating systems feels genuinely different when you sit down at the console, right? Uh, FreeBSD has like an NCurses style display. Uh, for installation, OpenBSD is a pure command line installation, but you just mash the enter button uh, a bunch of times, and guess what? You have a NetBSD installation, right? You you don't even have to type anything uh, except a root password. 
Uh, NetBSD, they have an NCurses installation also. Um, you know, they all have update mechanisms. They're all, uh, in my opinion, quite fun to use. Um, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole reason why we're here on the computers because we find it fun. And I think sort of resisting, you know, something because you don't like the license or because you got burned by it once or twice, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there's a lot of fun to be had in, in sort of a Unix implementation you've never used before. Uh, you know, I've been burned by FreeBSD a bunch of times and OpenBSD. I have an OpenBSD installation that I can't upgrade because <laughs> I let it sit for too long, right? We've all been burned before. Uh, or I guess I don't have the effort. I don't have the energy to work out the upgrade process for it is the right thing. And we've all been burned uh, you know, there is, like I said at the beginning, there is no perfect operating system, but Unix is the least bad thing we've had <laughs> since the beginning of time. Um, and I think closing opinions, uh, if any of these appeal to you, right, if any of these operating systems appeal to you, uh, go ahead and pick that one out. Um, you know, if you don't know which one to pick, pick FreeBSD. If you're a little bit paranoid, I, I really recommend OpenBSD. Um, and if you're learning C programming, uh, I recommend reading OpenBSD source code uh, quite heavily. Um, although I still do most of my debugging on Linux just because all of the security features on OpenBSD make, make debugging a little bit difficult. Uh, and as for NetBSD... Um, as I said, I haven't used it much, but I've used it enough to know uh, that it really is portable. You know, when you download the uh, system source code, uh, you know, package source and all these things, their entire their entire emphasis is based on, hey, let's make this run everywhere. Uh, and, you know, you go to their list and you see that it actually does run everywhere. It's quite... Uh, it's It's quite... Uh, I guess sublime, right? That would be the word I'd use to see uh, that the Unix philosophy of write C because it's just abstract enough that the compiler can turn it into whatever uh, machine opcodes we, we need it for the specific architecture. Uh, you know, seeing NetBSD running on everything is, is uh, you know, that's the whole point behind Unix is write once run everywhere. Um I think I think closing words here. Uh, of course, I am long-winded. That's how all of my shows will probably go. Uh, is that I am a very long-winded person. Um, uh, future episodes. I, I started working on like a C programming episode, and then I realized it's going to have to be a C programming series. Uh, I think that's something I've known all along: is that C programming is big, and I can't just make a very one thousand foot view, uh, compare and contrast type thing. Uh, between all of all of the various you know C C function calls and ways of writing C, like I did with the BSD episode, um, uh, and for a Plan Nine episode, uh, that's another thing. I'm gonna have to actually sit down and use Plan Nine again. I haven't used Plan Nine uh, in almost seven months now, um, even though uh, I bought a laptop specifically to run Plan Nine. Uh, that's what hackers do, right? You can't resist. Um, of course that laptop is running free BSD right now because I needed BSD more than plan nine, but that's how things go. 
Um, I think an in-depth episode, if anyone wants an in-depth episode uh, on sort of any of these BSCs. Of course, I'm not an authoritative source uh, on any of these, right? The authoritative sources read the source code and read the manual. Um, uh, But if anyone wants an in-depth episode or gets stuck, uh, feel free to ask for help. I probably won't have a 100% solution, uh, but I'll be able to point you in the right direction. Um, you know, if you want in-depth FreeBSD, right? How, how do FreeBSD jails work? Uh, I'm going to have to learn and then tell you, right? Um, or, you know, how do I get an open BSD workstation? Uh, I can do an episode on that or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, so anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, time to edit up this show. See if there are any, uh, noises I didn't catch. And then uh, I'll upload it. Hopefully the show notes stayed correct. They're probably wrong, but hopefully they'll stay correct. Uh, Anyway, thanks for listening. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive, and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.